there, and welcome to episode six of the Nova Scotia Kitchens podcast. It's the first field trip episode, so exciting, on Eric's Lobster Boat. Welcome to the first field trip episode of the Nova Scotia Kitchens podcast. Kitchens are places where ingredients come together from all over the world. Since there are so many delicious Nova Scotian ingredients that are harvested, grown, made, collected, and produced right here in our beautiful province, I thought that it would be really fun to share the details of how they make their way to our kitchens in these bonus field trip episodes. So these episodes won't necessarily contain a recipe per se, um, but they will highlight the origins of an ingredient produced in Nova Scotia. It's so much fun. I've always loved a good field trip, and it's really nice to know a little bit of the story behind what's on your plate. On today's show, I visit with my dad, Eric, and he talks all about how lobsters are caught. He's been lobster fishing since 1970 and always enjoys sharing what he knows. Here in our area of the province, the lobster season starts the last Monday in November and ends on the last day of May. The industry is huge in Nova Scotia. The value of land and lobster catches for the province in 2014 was $570 million. For a very small province, it's kind of a big deal. So since it's the last weeks of the lobster season here in District 34 at our end of the province, it's the end of my dad's last full season running his boat as he's retiring. And since Alana's Lobster Cakes was the most recent featured recipe on Nova Scotia Kitchens, I thought the timing was perfect for a little ride on my dad's lobster boat the Anne Isabella. I tried to record some audio while we were out on the boat for a true field trip audio experience, but the boat engine is loud. It's really loud. So we sat down in his living room instead. So let's get right to the visit with my dad, Eric. Okay, so can you describe the process of what you do day to day in order to catch a lobster? Well, when we go out every morning, we have 400 traps in the water, and most are on trawls. Most of our trawls are from 10 to 15 pots. A trawl is just a line of rope. Yeah, and there's a then trap every around every 100 feet. So if it's dark, we go to our GPS numbers and put our spotlight on and find our balloon and start hauling. And each trap comes in, and the two the, we land one trap. It goes back, and the two helpers clean out the lobsters, the crabs, put new bait on, take the pot back around the boat, and the whole time the rope's still coming to the next trap. So by the time they get one trap done, the next trap is waiting usually for them. And at the end of the 15 pots, we have a big pile of rope and 15 traps in reverse order. So then we turn the boat around and shoot the trawl back out. Uh, if it had lobsters in it, if it was a poor trawl, we might move it a little ways. But then we shoot our pots back in the water, and then we go to another trawl. And we have from 30 to 35 trawls scattered over three or four miles ourselves. Some boats go 30 or 40 miles, but we only stay close to land. So it takes us about 10 hours to haul all our traps. And in the fall, we might get 4,000 pounds in a day, and in May after Five months of fishing right now we're getting around 400 a day which is still good considering 
we've been fishing in the same spot for six months. <laughs> so uh, the season will be over the end of May, and then everybody will be off till next fall. So we, use, we use five or six hundred pounds of bait a day, kayaks, herring, uh, whatever. Um, mostly herring and mackerel and kayaks and redfish cuttings. That's the redfish and haddock that the fillets have been taken off of. We buy back the waste for, and we pay more for the waste than the fish plant pays for the fish <laughs> before they take the fillets off it. So, they get a good deal. Yeah. <laughs> So anyhow, we do that 10 hours a day, and every day it's fine. We go out, uh, maybe 100 days for the six months would be a, 80 to 100 days for the six month season would be the normal. In the winter, you only go once or maybe twice a week because of bad weather. But in the spring, when the water warms up, the lobsters are more active, and the by the middle of March till the end of May, we usually get out four or five days a week. So after you catch them and you bring them into the wharf, then what happens? They band the lobsters out of each pot. Well, actually, we put a we put them in a in a box of tubes, each one, and then when the trawl's done, the guys put the rubber bands on them and then put them into a crate. So right now we're getting like four crates a day. So when we come in, the truck on the wharf heists out our crates and weighs them. And they heist back down our bait for tomorrow and anything else we need. So then we tie the boat up and we have our bait in and our anything else we need. And we tie up and go home. And right now we're leaving the wharf around five in the morning and we get in around between two and three. That's a normal day. In December, we go whenever. We go all night sometimes, stay up all night, because that's when the lobsters are the most plentiful, and uh, every few minutes is worth a lot in the fall. The first three weeks of December, you make about half of your season as far as uh, what money you make, so you don't want any problems in December this time of year. If you miss a day, well, the, that's okay, because the pots will have more in them the next time you go out. So when you come into the wharf and they take the lobsters, that's different people have different buyers that buy the lobsters right, yeah. from them. Yeah. And so then what happens after that to the lobster? Well, they mainly, as far as I know, I always go to Bobby Newell's in Yarmouth. He has a place there that holds, I believe, 600,000 pounds. <clears throat> it's at least that, if not more. So we sell them to the buyer here at the wharf. They go to Bobby Newell's big plant. And then there are four big buyers in the world. So Bobby Newell would resell them to one of them. So they're the four that sell worldwide. So there's like three steps. The local guy on the wharf, Bobby Newell, who would buy from maybe 50 boats around Yarmouth, I'm guessing. And then they, they send transport trucks mainly from the States. And they load like... 40 to 50,000 pounds on a truck, and they'd go to Boston or New York. Or they might go to Halifax and go on the plane to uh, Europe. China and Korea are the big markets now. In the fall, they were sending uh, 90,000 pounds every week to Korea, 45,000 kilograms. 
on a special plane. They were bringing one plane just for lobsters. So 90,000 pounds a week were going to Korea. And I'm not sure uh, how they get their lobsters from here. Like, I don't, they have to be packed in the car into boxes with seaweed and <clears throat> chilled water and so on to be on the plane. With seaweed? That's their kind of... They used to use seaweed. I'm not sure right now, but I... You know, if you were buying a dozen to send to a relative yeah. somewhere, that's what they would tell you to do. Kinda Put a little seaweed in, in the box. You wouldn't want it to weigh too much on the plane, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not sure whether they would uh, take a transport truckload of our lobsters to Halifax and then... I'm sure that's... Not, probably that's what they do, but I'm not sure yeah. of that. Then they would repack them at a place in Halifax and uh, in these containers or whatever so that they're all ready to... I've seen it on TV where they load the pallets. Oh yeah. They're all done up in boxes, I don't know, 30 pounds or... and done up with a plastic wrap and... Yeah. They show the the uh, forklifts run into the plane with a load after a load of pallet because they've got to load them quick and... Oh I guess because they're get, sending them fresh, right? Yeah, so they're how alive long, and they're in the boxes, so... How long can they stay... Well, the right temperature, they can live quite a long time, but they don't want any heat or any cold. Uh, And now China's the big customer. Five years ago, we we could hardly sell them, and now China's paying. They want all they can get, I guess. They used to buy them from Australia, and they don't have any claws there. What? The lobsters in Australia don't have claws. Same as Florida, the spiny lobster, they don't have claws. Oh. They're more like a shrimp sort of thing? Yeah. They look like a big shrimp? Yeah. Oh. So they used to, China used, used, used to buy in theirs, and they didn't know what ours were with these funny-looking claws on them. That's part they got used to, Yeah, until <laughs> they got used to them. And now, uh, of course, we have probably 100 times the supply that Australia and Florida, they only, you know, they don't catch that much anyhow. So we have a big supply, the Maritimes and Maine and... So on, so we can supply big markets more so. Hmm. So you were saying that when you're going to go out to haul your pods, you follow your GPS coordinates. Right. So what other equipment do you have on the boat, like for technology? Kind well, of we have a plotter, which which is like a television screen. And uh, when we dump a 15-pot trawl, which would be, say, 1,500 feet long, I press a button when we dump the first pot, and I press the button when we dump our last pot. And I draw a line on the screen, and there's a button on the machine that you, uh, with a, there's an X on the center of the screen. And uh, when I want to go to that trawl tomorrow, I move, I can move the X on the end of that line, and it'll tell me the numbers to go to from the GPS, and it'll tell me the distance, like if it's two miles, it'll, and, uh, so at the end of the day, I'll have 30 lines on the plotter or on the TV screen. And when I go out tomorrow, when I go, I snap the machine on and I change the color. I can pick from yellow, green, blue, red, orange. So when I per- turn it on tomorrow morning, I'll change my color. When I look at it now, I've got 30 green lines on the screen. And when we go out tomorrow and, and as we haul each trawl, I redraw the line in a different color. So when we come in, I'll have 30 purple lines. Right, right, right. And I can always tell which ones I've hauled through the day and which ones are left That's to haul. Very simple. And it's it very accurate. Sense, yeah. you, you can go within a <laughs> boat length or two, so even if it's in the middle of the night, you just have to turn the boat around, put your spotlight on, and 
we have reflector tape on all our balloons. So when you put your spotlight on and look at your balloons, there's a lot of, a lot of eyes looking back at you. <laughs> if you put enough tape on your balloons, if you don't put enough on, I never put a lot. Some people put 100, 100 on, I don't ever put 8 or 10, but the more spots, the easier it is to find your balloons, especially when it's rough. So has your plotter ever failed? Like uh, what would happen if you got in the boat and then it didn't tell you where you're... I used to only have one plotter in the boat, and, and in the December, when we would be hauling at night more, I would always write the numbers down just to be safe. Yeah. But uh, I got a new plotter several years ago and put in the boat, so I have two now. So I have one as a backup, and I use them both. So if one did happen to mess up, I've still got another one. So you put the information into both of them? I do them both oh, okay. every day. I don't. Right now, where we haul all our pots the same pretty well every day, I could actually go out and haul, if it was fine, I could go haul all my pots without right. without it right now. But in December, it's bad weather and you're hauling at night and uh, yeah. uh, you, and, a, and the guys that go away out 30, 40 miles would never find their gear without it. Mm. But where I'm close to land, I could always find mine. Uh, not in the dark, particularly. I'd find a <laughs> few, I'd find some, because I, I know about where they are, but... In the daylight, you could go around and find most of them, but the guys way out in the middle of nowhere, they're you know they they would uh, they they can't wouldn't be able to go without one. But they some boats have more machinery than I have. I just got the basic. You can have a computer in that shows you three dimensional of the bottom, shows you all the ridges and all kinds of stuff. I don't need that or I don't have it or, but somebody new would find it handy, and the guys that are way out would find it when they're not familiar with the bottom. It would show them more where the sand holes are and where the rocky places are, that sort of thing. So you, when did you start fishing? 1970, it's, I guess. So back then, what would you have had as far as, how would you know where your pots were then? Then you went out and you dumped your pots and you looked back at the land and you matched up the television tower from Wellington over a certain house to tell how far up or down you were. Seriously? Yeah. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> it's and so simple. Line up certain Ager and the old guys have different the, all the old marks. You know, but I don't. I never got into all that. But uh, we were we never the machinery was just starting to come out. So if I went out at daylight, I'd look back and see how far up the tower was to get an idea how far up or down I was. And then we would have like 30 buoys, like a, two or 300 feet apart. We'd have a string of double, singular double pots then. One buoy on every pot or every two pots. So the whole string might be three quarters of a mile long. And if it was foggy, you might haul four buoys. You might miss the next one. <laughs> then where's my string? You know, then you got to feel your way back to your line of buoys. But nowadays, everything's connected, so... You don't have buoys, and they and they never go under for the tide. Uh, we use big balloons now, so we can haul anytime, anywhere. Where the older generation only had buoys that uh, you couldn't use big buoys because the pots would drag. If if you had a big buoy on one or two pots and it was rough, your two pots might go a half a mile, and you wouldn't know where they were. Oh, so you only okay. use small buoys that would go underwater. But when they those were under little, you, those little old foam ones that you see that well, yeah, have, the, not the I'm little sure tiny ones from Maine, but I mean, yeah, uh, you know, I have some, yeah, yeah. Uh, ordinary Sorry. buoys like uh, so. Now we put a buoy ahead of our balloon, 
and they never go under, so we can always go haul anywhere we want. But the older fellows there, buoys would go under, so they could only haul. When the tide is Every six hours, the tide slackens up, and they would haul for two or three hours. Then their buoys would all be underwater, and except close to land, they could probably still keep hauling. So if they were out three miles and their buoys went under, they'd come back in near land and maybe haul. Have lunch. <laughs> uh, well, or haul some pots by the bell buoy. And when the current got ready to slacken or die up again, they might go off another mile or two and get their buoys when they came up again. Huh. That's what they had to do then. And they only hauled like usually 150 pots all day. But now we haul 410 hours where then, uh, you know, they wouldn't haul very many because it was only one at a time. Now we can haul 15 pots in 15 minutes. Right. Uh, you know, there's no, no stopping it. Just everything's non-stop from the minute we leave the wharf. So then other people probably wouldn't have gone out as far either. Is that true? As far as No, but some went to the lurcher. The uh, uh, Rob Landers, Doug Churchill, Basil Adams, they went to the lurcher when they had nothing. They yeah. just watched their watch. And if it was an hour and 40 minutes to the lurcher, that's, they knew they, were, they so just they, went by their compass. And I was steered. just going to ask. So they yeah. had a compass, and that's what yeah. they would rely on. And there was a foghorn on the wharf, so if it was foggy, somebody had the job to put the horn on. So when you were coming back in, you could kind of come to when you thought you were close to land and shut the engine off and listen for the foghorn yeah. and feel your way back in. But the fish finders were started. Dad had one. He had one of the first ones, him and Vic Smith. They had where they were Simrad. And that was probably 1960 when they first started the fish finders. Okay. And that's, I guess I had one in when I started, but I, and, I, and a VHF radio, but I had no, nothing else. But pretty soon everything was, radars and everything was coming then. Within three or four years we had uh, Lorans and GPSs and radars and hydraulics started. What's a Loran? Uh, that gave, that's the old thing that gave you the numbers before the the GPS is like we have now. It used to be called Loran. Okay. And there was towers on land that were uh, there was one in Labrador, one in I'm guessing New Brunswick. So you had a machine and you put it on and there was a bunch of dials and you had to tune it in, and it would give you the numbers. But it took a few minutes to get your numbers. Oh, so wow. then these new uh, GPSs huh. replaced that. I bought an old one from Hager and it's still over there in the building. Oh yeah? I used it a year or two and it's just sitting there on the floor. Because they closed the towers. Okay. When the new uh, when the new GPS system came in, they shut down the towers that were on the land in the States. One was in Maine and one was in Labrador. I'm thinking Fox River, Labrador. So your signal came from a tower that was on land. But now everything comes from satellite. Right. So that's, that was the change then. And that came in the mid-70s or I'm guessing 76 or 78 along there somewhere. And the new system was a lot more accurate. And bad weather didn't interfere with the signals like it used to once in a while not work because the signal was coming from land. Snowstorms, that type of thing. Yeah. You'd lose, it. You'd lose your signal. So. so you got your first boat in 1970? Or was... 72, I guess. I went two years hired, Uncle Rob and Edgar a year each, and then I bought an old boat in Wageport with 250 pots and nothing else, just to, I had to put another engine in it. And I didn't get much, but I didn't pay much. Yeah. But I got the license, which nobody cared then, it wasn't worth much. Yeah. You, know, you could always get a license from somebody.
So you are dead. Always fished, right? Yeah. And so he... I think I've seen pictures of the old boats from when he would have gone. So those boats were a lot smaller. Yeah, they were a lot too. smaller then, yeah. They weren't like they are now. Mm -hmm. And yeah, now they're building them all bigger. And they need a whole lot more money if they're going to buy a Dad's first, Dad had a boat built whenever, I would guess in the 50s probably, for $300. And they always put in old car engines for the motors. Really? They took rebuilt car engines and $40 for an engine, put it in and off you went. It might last a year, it might last a while. When it when it failed up, put another one in for another fifty dollars. <laughs> That's what they use for power. Huh. So, so the, he had a boat done for three hundred dollars. My first boat was fourteen thousand in nineteen seventy two. So for a geared up boat now with everything in it, some of the engines are over a hundred thousand just yeah. for the engine. Well. So, but still, it's it's not always fun every day. In the winter, it's cold and. Uh, there's always some kind of a hassle going on with government or other boats sometimes that with the money now involved a lot of boats are really aggressive we call it yeah they'll almost run you over if they think you're catching one more lobster than they are so you know that gets a little tiresome sometimes yeah and I bet there's more government regulations and rules than there were there wasn't back any in the day. there wasn't <laughs> any back then you could do exactly as you please any day you went out in the summer or winter and now there's inspections, there's, it says on your license you can't go out if it's given a freezing spray. You can't, you can't put a hand line over to catch a fish while your lobs are fishing, that's illegal. You know, it's on and on and on. So back in the day, like when you started or whatever, or even when your dad went, what would the, where would the lobsters be sold to? Like, because they would have to be, how would they be? Transported. I mean, I guess he was in the 50s. Well, they used to use a half-ton truck on the wharf, and they would truck them to Yarmouth, and they would put them in, in the water, yeah. like in crates, for a little while. It wouldn't be as sophisticated as it is now. Uh, and the old buyer here was Atwood Brothers in Maine, and the lobsters would go from Yarmouth to Maine, I suppose on the ferries. Yeah. I don't know about some of that stuff. You know, Adrian yeah. could certainly know all about that. Yeah. So, what's your favorite way to eat lobster? Oh. Do you even like it? I imagine. You'd, or you'd rather have a hamburger. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I guess always. There's no ways I don't like it. It's good with mayonnaise and a sandwich. Uh, uh, hot lobster with butter on the stove. and. Uh, like cream lobster, you mean? Yeah, creamed yeah. and uh, just dipped in butter and vinegar. That's really good too. So, what's the best thing about being a lobster fisherman? Well, you're pretty independent. You know, you're, you're as much as anybody can be. You do exactly. You don't, you, except for dealing with government. You do exactly what you please. You get up in the morning. You look at the weather. If it's not a nice day, you can call the guys and tell them to stay home. You can go into town, cut wood, do anything you like. You're not on a schedule. So that's. Uh, there's not many jobs that are that way. And they say you're basically only out on the water 80 or 90 days a season. But of course you spend a lot of time in preparation. Right. But it's, uh, there's not many jobs where you can uh, more or less plan your own day. Every yeah. day is different. You get up, well, which way am I going today? Am I going to the woods to cut wood? Am I going to go haul lobster pots? And my, uh, 
going to town or is there errands to do or is there, you know, whatever. So that every day when I get up, it's there's no set schedule. It's uh, do whatever comes along, what suits for the day. And what's the hardest or worst part of it? Well, now probably dealing with all the government stuff. You have to take first aid. you got to have fire extinguishers inspected every year to be legal. It was always every four years, but somebody in Ottawa decided it was good every year. Life rafts inspected every four every year now, $2,000. You used to only have to do it every four years. No, that's fine. That was great. Thank you. Thanks so much to my dad, Eric, for taking me out on the boat and sharing some of his knowledge with me. Thanks to Julian Smith for the music, and to Adam Graham for technical help and for generally being awesome. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can connect with me at the Nova Scotia Kitchens page on Facebook, or email novascotiakitchens at gmail.com, and we're also on Instagram at Nova Scotia Kitchens. Until next time. <laughs>